Um, so we've been in our First Peter study, um, and so this morning we're First Peter uh, chapter four, verses twelve through nineteen. Uh, I love the way Amadeo says rejoicing. I wish I could say rejoicing that way; it just sounds better. Uh, we are we are born in suffering. Uh, it's part of the human condition. Since the fall of man into sin and self-worship, uh, our life has been plagued and defined by suffering. In Genesis chapter 3, God says to Adam, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life, you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. And by the sweat of your brow, Will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made? For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. You know, God also promised in Genesis chapter 3 that childbirth itself would be painful and difficult. We are born in a period of great suffering. We don't even remember the first time of suffering. I don't know, for those of you who don't understand the process of childbirth, and we won't go into it too much this morning, uh, ladies, um, just, it, it, is, it is struggle and pain, and not just for the mother, but for the baby. I don't know if you understand, but a, a child's head, as it's born in natural birth, uh, is squeezed, uh, and it lacks oxygen for a period of time uh, in the birth canal. So you, you literally go through a process of being in this warm, comfortable space where all your needs are met, and the faint hum of a heartbeat lets you know that somebody else is taking care of all your stuff, and then that environment is squeezed and pushed, and you are pushed out into a cold world with hands grabbing you and light and a little slap on the bottom to let you know, hey, you're here. Welcome. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the human condition. Suffering starts at birth. It goes all the way to the end. It's just who we are. World War II. So uh, my daughter Ellie has been, has been studying World War II in school, and so we've had a lot of discussion about that. Uh, we've watched some documentaries on it, watched Saving Private Ryan again. Um, I, they didn't. I did. <laughs> let, me, let me just clarify. Um, but World War II, by most counts, is the greatest cataclysm in the history of humankind. Um, suffering like the world has never seen and may never see again until God pours out his wrath. Um, 24 million military deaths in World War II and 34 million civilian deaths. And those are approximations because the numbers vary depending on who you ask. Some have put the number of total deaths uh, during World War II as high as 70 million people, including between 6 and 8 million Jews. Tremendous, tremendous suffering. Whole countries laid to waste. And yet, through that kind of suffering comes an explosion of innovation, an explosion of advancement in the human condition and in technology. Radar, radio navigation, passenger airlines with pressurized cabins so we can have the flight that we have today, widespread use of antibiotics. Penicillin was just kind of a tested thing at the beginning of World War II. During World War II, it's used widely to treat uh, those who are wounded in penicillin and other antibiotics that come out of that become widespread. 
making for better health. Synthetic oils and rubbers. Uh, the cavity magnetron. What's the cavity magnetron? Anybody know? It, it is used for CT scans. More importantly, it's used for microwaves. So you can have hot pockets. Um, it's, it's a genius human advancement. Nuclear power and the first computer. So I don't know how many of you guys realize the first true computer was developed during World War II by Bletchley Park in Great Britain for the purposes of breaking the unbreakable German code. The development of the first computer, Colossus, during World War II actually allowed the Allies to break the German code unbeknownst to the Germans, which ultimately led to Operation Overlord, which is D-Day and the end of the war. Uh, If you want to know more about that, you can go watch the movie Imitation Game, if you don't like reading, David, and... um, and learn more about that. So, so we see all of this, you see all of this suffering and pain and heartache and then all of this good that comes from it. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress in jail. Florence Nightingale was too sick to get out of bed, and so she reorganized the hospital system in Britain. We still use many of the organizational techniques that Nightingale developed while she was basically bedridden uh, in England. Louis Pasteur, who... Uh, is best known for the pasteurization of milk and other dairy products, was basically paralyzed and was under constant threat of seizures while he was making these great advancements in medicine. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letters from a Birmingham jail provided what many believe is a seminal moment in the civil rights movement. Horatio Spafford wrote, It is well with my soul from the deck of a ship as it passed by the spot in the Atlantic where... His four daughters died months after his son died, and he lost his entire fortune in the Chicago fire. Most of the psalms and hymns we sing were written in great difficulty. Most of the epistles, including this one, were written either in threat of prison or in prison itself. And most of the greatest thoughts of the greatest thinkers of all time had to pass through the fire. What seems to be the case, and in fact is the case, is that when God wants to make the most use of us, he puts us through the fire. We'll talk a little bit about this this morning, because I want to be clear that this idea of prosperity for the followers of Christ is not the truth. The issue for the followers of Christ is never how to protect yourself from persecution and suffering. It's never how to stay safe. It's never how to be rich or how to feel better or to insulate ourselves somehow from what is the human condition. The issue for the Christian is not practicing the art of avoiding suffering, but practicing the art of responding to it. Because it's inevitable. And so if something is inevitable, I can't just pretend like it's not there. I have, to do, I have to do something with it. So how should the followers of Christ respond to suffering? And Peter is going to tell us in chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Uh, kind of before we get into like some of these, I guess, principles of responding to suffering, it, I think it's helpful to sort of describe suffering in three categories. One, there's the overall human suffering. 
Okay, that's just part of being in life in a world that's full of sin and evil. Suffering is part of life, as we read in Genesis chapter 3, since man fell into sin. Okay, the second kind of suffering is the suffering that you go through as a result of poor choices. Wade mentioned this a little bit last week in uh, his message, but sometimes we suffer because we make bad choices. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more uh, in the scripture. And then there's suffering as a result of throwing your lot in with Jesus Christ. We'll also talk about that this morning. But we don't want to confuse the three because they're all different. They're all different, um, but we have to be able to respond to all three uh, as followers of Christ and do that in the way that, that God would have us to do. So, so the first principle in responding to suffering is don't be surprised by it. Don't be surprised by it. Look at 1 Peter 4.12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. The word, that, the Greek word that he uses here for surprise is literally astonishment. Astonishment. There's a little bit of a difference between surprise and astonishment. It paints a little bit of different word picture. It's most like, this cannot be happening. Whoa, this can't be happening to me. Peter says, don't, listen, don't be surprised at suffering. And he's talking to the followers of Christ here. He's not talking to people who are unregenerate. He's not talking to people who are in the world, people that don't know Jesus. He starts the verse by saying, beloved. And not just the hanger on, not just the church attender. He's talking about beloved. It has nothing to do with whether or not you're in God's favor or whether you have enough faith or say the right words in the right order or tithe your 10%. That's another message for another day. Suffering happens. It's part of the journey of life, and particularly it's part of the journey of following Christ. Don't buy this garbage that you can avoid suffering by getting in God's good graces or that God's wonderful plan for you doesn't involve suffering. Guys, that is not in the word of God It is a lie. It is a falsehood. And mostly it's created to give you to give money and resources to something that's not the truth. I don't want to be unkind, but I also want to be truthful. And so I want to say with the most kindness I can generate, put that stuff away. That's misleading you as to who God is and what he wants for you. Peter makes that very, very clear. He says, don't be surprised when you suffer. Don't act like some strange thing is happening to you and you don't know where that's coming from. Suffering is a part of God's plan for your good. He says strange things. And this is, you know, something alien. Something, and, and we sort of treat strangers differently. We even teach our kids, you know, stranger danger. Uh, all right, got a stranger over here. I'm not really sure not really sure what to do with this deal. Peter says, don't treat it as a stranger. In fact, he goes on to say, treat it as a teacher. Treat it as a tutor because suffering can teach us stuff. So sort of our second principle 
Don't miss the lesson in suffering. Don't miss the teaching. Suffering can strengthen us spiritually. In fact, Peter says suffering is there as a plan of God to strengthen us spiritually. How many of you guys uh, work out, lift weights? You realize the process of lifting weights is tearing your muscles. It tears your muscles so they can, when they heal, they heal back stronger. Uh, runners laughs while she runs. Running is expanding your lungs, and at that time, it is actually tearing the lung tissue. That, that pain you feel in your chest when you're running is the lung tissue tearing so that your lungs can expand and increase your lung capacity. It is strength built through suffering. In the spiritual sense, suffering can build us spiritually. And, in fact, is intended by God to do that. Look at, look at verses 12 and 13 again. Kind of the second part. He says, The fiery ordeal comes upon you for your testing. Down in verse 13, he says, You share the sufferings of Christ. It comes upon you for your testing as you share in the sufferings of Christ. Notice that Peter doesn't refer to suffering as breaking a nail or losing your NCAA tournament bracket or missing your cup of coffee uh, on a Monday morning. He calls it a fiery ordeal. Taken literally, this is a purification by fire. He's using a metallurgy term. He's using a term that comes from working with metals and metalsmiths. Metalsmiths will heat gold to its liquid form, and then they will skim impurities off the top of the gold. And they will actually do that over and over again until the metalsmith can see his or her reflection in the surface of the liquid gold. Can God see his reflection in you? If he can't, he's going to refine you until he can. For some of us, that looks different than others. But suffering should push us closer to Christ, not further away. And that's probably the hardest thing that I'm going to say today. Because it's so hard to put into practice, especially when we know God has all of the power and all of the strength to fix the suffering that I'm in or the suffering that my loved one is in. I know that God can fix it. I know he can take it away. And so my tendency as a human, as I worship myself and I just want it to go away, is to blame God and to say, I'm going further away from you because of my suffering. That is hard, and I would not pretend to stand up here and act like it's easy to say, oh, I'll let me let suffering make me run closer to God because it's so easy. It's not. That's why Peter's talking about it here, because what he's saying is that God's plan is for you to move in his direction through your suffering and not further away, because then on the back side of that, you will see what he's been doing. We had some folks give testimonies at Christmas time. Lindsay Reed got up here and talked about Dax having cancer and coming through that process and how it drew her closer to the Lord. 
But yeah, it can push us away. But when we see it on the back end, when we see the fullness of his plan, which we can't see today, then we know what he was doing. So part of what our blame in putting blame on God, part of what we do is because we're so short-sighted, we cannot see the fullness of what he's trying to accomplish until it's reached its end. And in our case, as believers, it's when we stand in front of him. I can't, I can't see that day. I, I don't know about y'all. I, I can't see it. He's the only one. He's the only one who can. The psalmist speaks of running to God for shelter as a hiding place in times of struggle. And he paints a word picture of a rock and actually a cleft of a rock. Uh, many hymns talk about the cleft of the rock, but it's just this little place where I can kind of get underneath and the wind and the rain and the torrent can't reach me. And that's the way the psalmist describes God. So if we allow it, our suffering can push us in God's direction. It can make us run to the one person who can provide real comfort and hope and peace. Second part of that is though, Suffering can be self-inflicted. Look at verse 15. He says, Make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. A murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. Peter here is warning the follower of Christ that he's not to assume that the consequences of bad behavior are the same as suffering. (laughs) Okay? Again, this is a principle we have to share with our children very early on. The consequences of bad behavior are not the same as suffering. Listen to me carefully. If you come flying down this road on Sunday morning and you're doing 55 and West Columbia pulls you over, don't pull in this parking lot, okay? Pull across the street. Pull, go over to Brookland. You're at Brookland now. Okay? Don't tell, don't tell the officer you go to church here. Please, and tell him, oh, well, I'm late to church. And so I'm just, I'm trying to get to church, officer. And you're punishing me. You're, you're making me suffer for Jesus. Because all I'm trying to do is get there to worship Jesus. Guys, that is not suffering for Jesus. Okay? Seriously. I, I'm, I'm being facetious a little bit. But seriously, don't tell people you go to church here. Um, <clears throat> we'll edit that out later, David. Um, this is an interesting list of folks that Peter lumps together, don't you think? He says, murderer, bad. Thief, bad. Evildoer, bad. And then, with that group of people in the same cell, the troublesome meddler. This is, what's this troublesome meddler thing? <laughs> this is a nosy agitator. A gossip. Mm. They don't want to be part of the solution, and they're not part of the problem. They just want to be in the know. In other words, this is the person who wants to lift him or herself up or tear others down so they can look better in the face of that discussion. Peter lumps this person into the category with murderers and thieves and evil doers. 
And we know why, because these, these are the people that then whine when someone calls them out on their gossip and their nosy agitating. And they tell, oh, well, I'm suffering for Jesus. This is the gossip prayer. I just want to ask you guys to pray for my friend Dave. Oh, Dave has just been doing X, Y, Z. That ain't none of your business what Dave's been doing. Oh, and then the brother in Christ or the sister in Christ pulls this person aside after that. Hey, listen, let's not be stirring stuff up about, oh, I'm suffering for Christ now. I'm just trying to, just trying to be a witness. No, no, you're not. That's not suffering. Right, don't, don't, don't get in, in your, your little bubble and in, in your little blinders on and think that I'm, I'm, I'm struggling for Christ because uh, I'm stealing from my employer. I'm, I'm taking 30-minute breaks every hour to surf the internet. And then my, your employer comes by and says, hey, if I see you doing that again, you're fired. I mean, I literally, this was a story I heard from one of my clients this week. And then an hour later, employer comes right by, person's doing it again. Hey, you're fired. I'm suffering for Jesus. Oh, no, you got a Facebook problem. I think Wade said last week, you're stupid. <laughs> That's not popular in church either. You're suffering because you don't make good choices, because you don't make choices that are guided by wisdom from the Lord. You're making your own choices, and you're suffering because of that. Look, this kind of behavior diminishes the quality of grace. It diminishes the quality of mercy. It diminishes what God does for us. And ultimately, it is a slap in the face to his name. It's embarrassing to the people who really are following Christ and an embarrassment to Christ himself. If you're going to live like this, murderer, thief, evildoer, nosy agitator, please don't tell anyone that you wear the name of Jesus. I'm begging you. Just stop telling people. That's not suffering for Christ. That's suffering because you're doing the opposite of who Christ is. Suffering can, though, remind us of the value of Christ. We talk about devaluing Christ's name. That's because he has value, and our suffering can remind us of that value. Peter, here and in other places, talks about this idea that we're participating in the suffering of Christ. Verse 13, 14, 16, he says, You share the sufferings of Christ. You are reviled for the name of Christ. You suffer as a Christian. That means I've, I've put on the badge... I've put on the t-shirt that says, I belong to Christ. I've put on the t-shirt that says, ask me about my faith. I'm wearing his name, and now I'm participating in the suffering that he had to endure while he was here. And ultimately, that reminds me of his value. We follow a Savior who was reviled, rejected, mistreated, cast out, misunderstood, even by his own people who knew in and out the word of God that promised his very coming. Isaiah prophesied about him. He said he was despised and forsaken by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised and we did not esteem him. We did not hold him in high regard. Isaiah 53.3. In other words, no one considered Jesus to be much of anything. 
He ain't worth a nickel. Showed Will a little clip the other day and said, that and a nickel will get you a big fat cup of jack squat. Okay? Jesus wasn't worth jack squat to the people around him. The stone that the builders rejected looked terrible. All right, that's not going to work. I'm going to throw that over there in the stone pile. The mason went back around and picked that stone up and made it the cornerstone. The most important stone in the foundation of the structure. That's Jesus, and that's who we proclaim. The ugliest, most worthless, most rejected thing has become the thing of greatest value. That's what God does. He makes all things new, especially in the ugly. Guys, you realize the word Christian was used as an insult? Similar to the word Puritan in England. So the word Puritan actually comes out of insults that were leveled at these folks in England who wanted to live a pure life before God and in some radical ways. And so they were called Puritans as a joke. Christians were called by people in the Roman Empire, they were called Christians as a joke. It's an epithet. It still is, in many ways, an epithet. So, will you wear that name? Sometimes it's even hard to tell people I'm a Christian. I, I like to say I'm a follower of Jesus. Because Christian means so many things these days, I'm not sure that that actually explains what I do. But will you wear his name is the question. Will you tell your neighbors that you wear his name? Will people at work know that you wear his name? I was talking with friends of mine this week at a funeral on Monday. question is, do, do, you know, do people know when you've passed that you served Christ? Will they be surprised at your funeral when they talk about how you were a follower of Jesus? What? Oh, I don't know. I never talked to him about it. Will you suddenly become evasive and quick when asked what your faith is? Five rules of dodgeball. Duck, dive, dip, dodge. Dodge, duck, dip, dive, and dodge. Five rules of dodgeball. Five rules for the Christian wanting to avoid suffering. Dodge, duck, dip, dive, and dodge. Don't do that. If, if you believe him and you love him and he's saved you and he's called you, tell everybody. Let them know. It's okay. And you're going to suffer. You're going to be picked at. You're going to be persecuted. We don't live in China. But you'll be made fun of sometimes. Sometimes people are going to give you an odd look. Uh, I'm sure I can hang out with them anymore. They're Jesus people. I can promise you, the folks that decide they don't want to hang out with you anymore because you're Jesus people weren't worth hanging out with to start with. What they're worth is you sharing the gospel with them so that they can come to know that Jesus that you know so they won't wonder anymore about why you're a Jesus person. Peter says, don't do all that. Keep rejoicing. Keep on 
rejoicing. Look at verse 13. He says, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Now listen, I'm a wordsmith and a lawyer, so words and their order are very, very important to me. This is important. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. That is great rejoicing. That is celebration. That is fist pumping. That is running around with hands in the air rejoicing. It is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for that privilege. Privilege. A privilege to suffer for Jesus. It feels like, and we've seen this a couple of times in first, it feels like Peter's gone too far again. All right, I was all, I was all good when you were talking about the whole don't be surprised by suffering because I've experienced a lot of it and I've lived in this world and I've seen a lot of it and my friends have seen it. My family. So I'm okay when you say don't be surprised by suffering. I'm also okay when you say maybe we can learn some things from suffering. Okay, because I get the whole coaching and I need to be you know, refined, and I need to be strengthened and all that, and I can get there. But now you're telling me, bro, now you're telling me to be happy about it. That's not what he said. That's not what he said. We don't paste on the phony smile and say, yeah, it's all good. My favorite used to be, and, and I, I noticed this as a kid very early on, and then we used to laugh about it later at the house. But you'd be at church, and my dad would, you know, somebody would come in. My dad's at the door greeting people. And my dad was a pastor. Greeting people. Guy comes in the door. You know that week that his family has been in the hospital. Uh, his car broke down. Like all this is going on. And my dad would go, hey, man. And he would stop, put the two hands. All right, now I got the two hands. I'm shaking your hand. I got the other hand. Hey, you doing okay? If I was any better, I couldn't stand it. <laughs> I don't know, we were talking on Thursday and your wife almost died and I had to come get you because your car broke down at the hospital. No. I mean, that's not what Peter's talking that, about. That's, that's fake. It's not real. It's not authentic. And that's not what Peter is saying here. He's not saying be a fake. He's not saying act like you're happy because you're going through it. What he's saying is the rejoicing comes from sharing in the suffering of Christ. It comes from the privilege of knowing what your your Savior, Jesus, went through. We rejoice because we get to walk as Christ did. We get to do what he said do, and that's we pick up our cross and we follow him. And it hurts, and it gets to be a drag. And by the way, the reason you're picking up a cross is because you're carrying it to the place of crucifixion, where you get to die to self. Suffering for us is the way, one of the ways that God shows us how to die to self. Because if I'm living for myself, when I suffer, it's all the more worse. And I have to nail that to the cross and let him take it. That's what Peter's talking about here. He's talking about picking up our cross and following him. We all have a degree of suffering. That's why this first part of this verse is so important. To the degree that you share in the suffering of Christ, rejoice. We all have 
different degrees of suffering. We all walk our own paths. I may be going through something. You have no idea what I'm going through. Same for you. I can see you at the grocery store, see you here at church, and I don't have the first clue what you're going through. Yeah, I can see you got on some Air Jordans, and then I automatically assume you're not going through anything. Peter says, to the degree you suffer for Christ, rejoice. This ultimately keeps us from comparing our suffering to others. One of the most disingenuous things you can do is to say, oh, well, my suffering is not nearly as bad as what they're doing, what they're going through. And so I shouldn't feel bad about my suffering. That's not what he's saying. And ultimately, that's not right. Don't compare your suffering to somebody else's suffering. Oh, well, this person over here is just the worst, and look at all the stuff they get. And then I'm over here working for Christ, and I get jack squat. That's, that's not what it looks like to follow Christ. And ultimately, again, that is a slap in the face to God and to Christ for what he has done for us. He has, the designed, he has designed the degree and the measure of the way in which you will suffer for your good. He knows what you need and don't need. He knows what refining you looks like. He knows how many times he's going to have to skim the impurities off the top of your surface before you're a reflection of him. Don't compare your suffering to others. Good or bad. Compare it to the suffering of Christ. And I promise you, when you do, everything else goes real dim. And in all of that stuff you're complaining about, it don't look so bad. At all. And that's what he went through to buy your redemption. Paul said, I mean, Peter says, you're literally fellowshipping with Christ as you suffer. So he's saying you you actually may be closest to Christ when you're suffering. You're fellowshipping with him. The last thing he kind of notes here is that your joy will be even greater. This exaltation will be even greater when you see him. I can walk. I can still run, thankfully. Think of the joy of our brothers and sisters in Christ who can't walk when they see Jesus. And he says, get up out of that chair. Get out of that wheelchair. Come into your glory. Can you imagine the joy of someone who can't see in this life, seeing Jesus for the first time? I can see. I can move all my limbs. I'm in good health. I'm going to be joyful when I see Jesus, but think of the joy of those who have gone through the most indescribable fire you can go through when they see him and when all is made new. So Peter's not saying, hey, rejoice in this life when you get to share in the suffering of Christ. He's saying the joy that awaits you on the other end is even more incredible. Even more incredible. So not only can I rejoice here, I can rejoice because I know what is at the end. And it's eternity with Christ in his glory and things I can't even imagine 
as a reward. That's what it looks like to follow the Lord Jesus. That's where my hope is. That's where I'm resting everything. I can't rest my hope in my car and whether it runs or my job or whether I keep it or whether my family members that I love stay alive or whether my friends stay in my life. That's all temporal. I can't settle my joy on those things because all of those things are temporal and I'm going to suffer through them. I have to set my hope on the Lord and what he's promised me through the blood of Jesus and then I can rejoice in my suffering, not putting on a happy face, but just saying, God, thank you for the privilege of being your child. Verse 19, he says, if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right. Plant yourself like a tree by rivers of water and keep doing what is right. Trust your lives to the God who created you 